Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. My name is Brian Stanford, and I'm coming at you from Asheville, North Carolina. So this is an exciting day for me. <clears throat> it's January 15th, 2020, and it's my first time recording a podcast on my own. Um, if you followed my Modern Gnostic YouTube channel or followed me on social media, um, I've been interviewed on different people's podcasts in the past. Uh, recently, I did the great podcast Life's a Trip with my friend Dave Kavnar. I highly recommend you checking that out. And the podcast format was so much fun to do that I got inspired to download this app on my phone. Um, I don't have a fancy microphone. I don't have any kind of setup at all. I have my iPhone and a cup of coffee, and I'm sitting uh, at the counter here in the Gnostic uh, Sanctuary in Candler, North Carolina. That is my house. Um, and I've just been really inspired lately to start uh, recording talks, giving talks, discussing um, the many paths of the esoteric tradition and how they manifest in the modern Western world. Uh, so interestingly, when I was setting up this podcast, when I was setting up the title page for the podcast and the way it will appear when people search for it, and it asked me to make a short, you know, say a short few words about what the podcast is going to be about. And every time I see things like that, I, my mind immediately goes blank and I try to think, what is it I'm wanting to communicate? And I'm one of these people who um, I, I have this experience in this condition that I call brain on fire, particularly when it comes to spirituality and the spiritual path. My brain is um, generally on fire for these things. And when I sit down and try to organize my thoughts around them, uh, it's scattered all over the place. And I, I have stacks and stacks of journals where I try to write about this stuff. I have... Uh, YouTube uh, videos I've made, I've given talks, um, and yet I still find it really hard to quickly summarize, uh, for example, what this podcast is going to be about. So what I came up with is that Modern Gnostic will be um, an exploration of the many manifestations of the esoteric path uh, from a modern Western perspective. So I guess maybe the first things that I should do with this inaugural episode is say uh, a few words about what the hell I mean by that. Um, as a little background about myself, I spent uh, the last 20 plus years deeply involved in practicing various traditions of traditional and modern Buddhism, as well as um, occult magical practices, particularly chaos magic um, and some other forms of ceremonial magic and certain aspects of devotional um, Gaudiya Vaishnava Hinduism. Um, and the what I consider to be the culmination of my spiritual uh, meditation work up to that point happened about two years ago in what I describe as my awakening experience or, or my first really big awakening experience 
And surprisingly, as a Buddhist, I expected my meditation experience to leave me, lead me to the experience of no self, um, to, to the recognition that there is no self that is solid, continuous, separate, permanent, and defined. Um, and I definitely found that as a meditative experience. In other words, it is undeniable uh, to me that with the proper amount of time and the proper amount of instruction and effort, one can use Buddhist meditation techniques to have the experience of no self and to have um, the same experience that is described in the scriptures of traditional Buddhism as no self. Um, one of the ways that you'll often hear teachers describe this is that the sense of a permanent watcher begins to flick on and off again. And I definitely began to have these experiences, but what I see as the kind of flip side of that is that it always flickered back on. Um, and I don't, I don't know, maybe I should go far into what I mean when I say this, um, but the culmination of my meditation experience at that time was a direct um, recognition and experience of what I think the Hindus are talking about when they talk about the Atman or the soul or the capital S self. So I had the experience of the transitory illusory nature of the small self, but also had the direct experience of the Atman the super soul that is always there, that has never been created, can never be destroyed, um, and can be tapped into. And indeed, it's, it's my hypothesis uh, based on personal experience and based on teachings that I've received over the years and in the last two years of kind of intensive study on things like the soul, that this is actually who and what we really are. Um, a lot of traditional scriptures will give the explanation that this capital S self is the very thing that is looking out of my eyes and hearing out of my ears at this very moment. It is the thing that is looking out of your eyes and hearing out of your ears at this very moment. And what I have found is that tapping into that capital S self or soul or Atman there is also the immediate awareness of the other, the capital O other, the divine, Hashem, God, whatever word you want to put on it. Um, and you will find when you start to have these experiences that there really is no word that fits it fully. But I came to the experiential realization of my true being, my me, the soul, the self, not only exists, but is in relation to the blazing fire that is the self of divinity. And so that set me right out of Buddhism, um, as, as probably a lot of listeners to this podcast uh, know it is pretty accurate to describe Buddhism as an atheistic religion. Um, a lot of traditional Buddhism definitely has uh, a hierarchy of spiritual beings. There are bodhisattvas, there are um, ascended masters, there are uh, entities that for all 
intents and purposes function as gods or divine beings, but Buddhism denies a supreme consciousness that created and is sustaining the universe. Um, Not to go into some history lesson of Eastern religions, but Buddhism came out of Hinduism, and Hinduism is not one monolithic thing and has many different manifestations and um, interpretations and traditions, but there is generally recognized in Hinduism a supreme divine creator and sustainer being. And my, ex- my meditation and ritual experiences brought me into relation with this being. I also felt immediately propelled into Christianity, which was absolutely baffling for me. Um, I like to say I was brought up Christian-ish. My mother is a very devout, though mystically minded lady who has had her own unique spiritual path through various forms of Christian fundamentalism into now a kind of open Um, free interpretive uh, mysticism of her own. So I was raised in a house where I would hear Bible stories and church was there as something we could go to. But my father um, is a man who claims to be an atheist. And so he never forced me to go to church. So I say I grew up Christian-ish because I grew up hearing the stories. I grew up knowing who Jesus was. I, I grew up having some concept of who God was. I heard Bible stories and hymns. I said my prayers at night. Um, But like a lot of people in modern culture, at a pretty young age, I came to reject the image of God that was put forward to me um, in the churches that I went to or, or in the understanding of uh, people whose books I was exposed to or, or whose sermons I heard. In short, I rejected the angry, judging, condemning um, patriarch in the sky somewhere with a book that's keeping um, account of all your sins and shortcomings. And if you don't walk an entirely direct and straight line, he will cast you into an eternity of endless suffering. That if you do not accept the uh, dogma of religious teaching, he will cast you into an eternity of endless suffering. This has been patently absurd to me for as long as I have seriously thought about these things. What I've come to learn in the last couple of years is that Christianity has a rich mystical and esoteric tradition in which this very same God is also rejected. Um, there, this is like a, a kindergarten or it's a, it's a very simplistic and base understanding of God. So anyway, I felt compelled to re-examine Christianity. Why, why Christianity? Well, whether you like Christianity or not, or whether you have problems with Christianity or not, We undoubtedly live in a culture that is deeply influenced and infused with Christian concepts. 
Um, I believe it was the psychologist Carl Jung who said something like, I'm paraphrasing here, this is not an exact quote, but something to the effect that um, the Western man cannot not be a Christian. Even his dreams are Christian. Our, our concept of time is Christian. Our concept of the kind of imminent, the, the world coming to some point of cataclysm or period of judgment is Christian. I, I think this manifests in modern day times in a lot of our, our uh, fear around the environment. Not to say that there aren't a lot of problems with the environment, but the idea that the end is now, that we are the last generation, um, these are Christian ideas. So much of our mythic symbolism and the things that come through in our dreams and in our art are informed and infused with the ancient Christian tradition that has been the spiritual tradition of Western people for a thousand years. Um, and I recognized and I, and I felt deeply that I needed to come to terms with my ancestral spiritual tradition. Now, I hear a lot of people say this, and, and what most people who say this end up doing is saying, well, yeah, you know, my grandmother was Christian, and my great-grandmother was Christian, and my great-great-grandmother was Christian, and my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was Christian or Jewish or something like that. But way back there somewhere before those nasty Christians came along, I had some pagan ancestors. And so I want to get in touch with my ancestral spiritual roots, and I'm going to do that by getting involved in uh, some kind of modern pagan revivalist um, religion. And if this is what feeds people, that's absolutely fine. I'm not saying that that is not a legitimate path or is not a way to get in contact with your ancestral spiritual tradition, but I knew that wasn't going to work uh, for me. I said I had a Christian-ish upbringing. I I should mention, and I, I realize this more and more, almost on a daily basis, that I come from a line of powerful Christian matriarchs. My mother, my grandmother, my aunts have always been these pillars of love and, and connection with God. And I realized when I wanted to get involved with the spiritual tradition of my culture that it had to be Christianity. I had to make some kind of reckoning with Christianity. And this has been the path that I've been on for the last two years. In that time, I began to take a serious look at ancient Gnosticism and at manifestations of modern Gnosticism as well as the broader Western esoteric tradition. And these are things that I'm going to talk about in future episodes. In fact, it's going to be the entire basis of the conversations that we have here um, on this podcast. But I'm attempting today to give a, a brief introductory, and I know already I've been rambling all over the place, but here's a quick attempt at what I mean when I say modern Gnosticism. First of all, what does the word gnosis mean? The word gnosis basically means a knowledge that is born of direct experience. So not a knowledge that simply comes from reading something in a book 
or being told something by a teacher or a guru. But gnosis is a direct, a direct experiential knowing. I like to think of it as a knowing that gets inscribed in your bones. So revelations that you might have in meditation practice or in prayer or in psychedelic experience, these earth-shattering revelations of knowledge that completely change the way that you view and interact and show up in the world, um, this is gnosis. And so Gnosticism, in both an ancient and a modern context, is a path that is geared towards seeking this kind of direct experiential knowledge. Now there's a famous quote from ancient Gnostic scriptures, um, something called the Exerta de Theodoto, that gives a description of Gnosis, and I would like to read that to you, because I think it would help things maybe make a little sense. So here it goes. What makes us free is the Gnosis, of who we were, of what we have become, of where we were, of wherein we have been cast, of where to we are hastening, of what we are being freed, of what birth really is, and of what rebirth really is. This is one of those passages that you can find if you start studying scripture that will just shake you to your core the more and more you think about it. So one of the premises that is in both ancient and modern manifestations of Gnosticism in both the East and the West is that this material world that we are in is not our natural home that we are spirit souls, that we are sparks, living sparks of the divine that are in material manifestation. Now, different esoteric religions and different schools of Gnosticism have different views about that material world. Um, a lot of people think that all of ancient Gnosticism had a very negative view of the material world. And indeed, a lot of those sects of Gnosticism did, as do a lot of esoteric sects of Hinduism. Um, I think this really bursted uh, into the modern mindset with the movies The Matrix, which are a brilliant modern mythology around some of the foundational Gnostic myths in both the East and the West, that the material world is really an illusion for us, that it's not quite the full picture, and that there is a greater reality behind this. Some of the ancient Gnostics viewed the material world in a very positive light. Um, if you look at some of the esoteric teachings of Judaism, um, the entire material world, every single molecule of material existence is seen as a spark of the divine encased in, in a material body and that the work of the spiritual seeker is to free all of those divine sparks. And so this is why 
you might pray before you eat to release the divine sparks, to raise them back up to their divine status in that food. Um, you engage in all the things you do in the material world in this, in this way of seeing them from a prayerful mode as these sparks of the divine being that through our interaction and through our prayer and practice, we are raising them back up to their original condition. So Gnosticism can take either a negative view of this material world or a positive view of this material world or something in between. But one of the foundational understandings of the Gnostic path is that what makes us free is direct experiential knowledge about who and what we really are and where we really are, of what birth truly is, and of what rebirth truly is. So the Gnostic path sets out to find answers to these questions. Who and what is consciousness? What is this strange world that I'm cast into? What am I here for? And we don't seek the answers to those solely in books and scriptures. Books and scriptures for the modern Gnostic are maps. And they are like the um, exploratory journals of previous travelers. And if you're traveling in uncharted territory or in areas you've never been before, it's extremely helpful and beneficial to have maps and to have journals from previous explorers. And I think this is what the scriptures and the spiritual teachings really are. But ultimately, the uh, purpose of modern Gnosticism, as I am practicing it and as I am attempting to to help people uh, see and practice, is to get that direct experiential knowledge yourself. So I said this was a common trait in esoteric religious paths, both East and West. And I think that's because this points at something universal. There is the idea of what is called a perennial tradition, um, a tradition that's older than all religions, and that, as a matter of fact, all religions are manifestations of a perennial tradition. So when you hear me talk about the Western esoteric path, I would say that this idea of a perennial tradition is integral to the Western esoteric path. We can see it in the writings and teachings of Western esotericists all the way back to the 14 or 1500s. And even more important than that, you can see it through your own direct experience through practice. So what I want to do with the Modern Gnostic Podcast is have teachings on this path, bring on uh, different guests and practitioners to talk about these things, expose you guys to different maps and models, different scriptures, maybe things that you've never heard of that point you in the direction or can point you in the direction of this direct experiential gnosis. So for the remaining little bit of this episode, I want to read to you 
a fairly short Gnostic scripture called the Song of the Pearl. And this is one of my favorite um, Gnostic scriptures. It is originally found in the apocryphal Acts of St. Thomas. And tradition says that St. Thomas gave this teaching to uh, some fellow mystics while they were imprisoned. They were imprisoned because um, Christian mystics were being persecuted. And so he gave this teaching, the Song of the Pearl. And the Song of the Pearl lays out the basic Gnostic urge. Uh, It gives some, some basis and a myth around this idea that there is something more, that there is something more that we are meant to be doing and being and showing up as in the world. And so I'm going to read you guys um, the song of the pearl. And if you hear me taking sips every now and then, it's because I'm having a little bit of coffee, which is essential for making a good podcast. The song of the pearl, dressing for the journey. When I was a little child living in my father's palace in his kingdom, happy in the glories and riches of my family that nurtured me, my parents gave me supplies and sent me out on a mission from our home in the east. From their treasure house, they made up a cargo for me. It was big, though light enough so I could carry it myself, holding gold from the highest houses and silver of Gazak the Great, and rubies of India, and opals from the land of Kushan. And they girded me with adamant that can crush iron. They took off my bright robe of glory, which they had made for me out of love, and took away my purple toga, which was woven to fit my stature. They made a covenant with me, and wrote it in my heart so I could not forget. When you go down into Egypt and bring back the one pearl that lies in the middle of the sea and is guarded by the snorting serpent, you will again put on your robe of glory and your toga over it, and with your brother, our next in rank, you will be heir in their kingdom. I left the east and traveled down to Egypt with my two royal guides, since the way was dangerous and harsh and I was very young to walk alone. I crossed the borders of Mishan, the gathering place of merchants of the east, came into the land of the Babylonians and entered the walls of Sarburg. When I went down into Egypt, my companions left me. I went straight to the serpent and settled close by him in an inn waiting for him to sleep so I could take my pearl from him. Since I was alone, I was a stranger to others in the inn. Yet I saw one of my own people there, a nobleman from the east, young, handsome, lovable, a son of kings, an anointed one. And he came and was close to me, and I made him my confidant with whom I shared my mission. I warned him against the Egyptians and of contact with the unclean ones. Then I put on a robe like theirs, lest they suspect me as an outsider who had come to steal the pearl, lest they arouse the serpent against me. Somehow they learned I was not their countrymen, and they dealt with me cunningly, and gave me their food to eat. I fell into a deep sleep. I forgot that I was a son of kings and served their king. I forgot the pearl for which my parents had sent me. 
Through the heaviness of their food, I fell into a deep sleep. When all these things happened, my parents knew and grieved for me. It was proclaimed in our kingdom that all should come to our gate, and the kings and princes of Parthia and all the nobles of the east wove a plan on my behalf, so I would not be left in Egypt. And they wrote me a letter, and every noble signed it with his name. From your father, the king of kings, and your mother, the mistress of the east, and from your brother, our next in rank, and to you, our son in Egypt, peace. Awake and rise from your sleep and hear the words of our letter. Remember that you are a son of kings and see the slavery of your life. Remember the pearl for which you were sent into Egypt. Remember your robe of glory and your splendid mantle which you may wear when your name is called in the book of life, when it is read in the book of heroes, when you and your brother inherit our kingdom. And serving as messenger the letter was a letter sealed by the king with his right hand against the evil children of Babylon and their savage demons of the Sarberg Labyrinth. It rose up in the form of an eagle, the king of all winged fowl. It flew and alighted beside me and became speech. And its voice and the sound of its rustling, I awoke and rose from my sleep. I took it, kissed it, broke its seal and read. And the words written on my heart were in the letter for me to read. I remembered that I was the son of kings, and my free soul longed for its own kind. I remembered the pearl for which I was sent down into Egypt, and I began to enchant the terrible and snorting serpent. I charmed him into sleep by calling the name of my father over him and of my mother, the queen of the east. I seized the pearl and turned to carry it to my father. Those filthy and impure garments I stripped off, leaving them in the fields, and went straight on my way into the land of our homeland in the east. On my way, the letter that awakened me was lying like a woman on the road, and as she had awakened me with her voice, so she guided me with her light, as if she were an oracle. She was written on Chinese silk and shone before me in her own form. Her voice soothed my fear, and its love urged me on. I hurried past the labyrinth walls of Sarberg and Babylon on the left, and came to Mishan, the haven of merchants perched on the coast of the sea. My robe of glory that I had taken off and the toga over it were sent by my parents from the heights of Hykarnia. They were in the hands of treasurers to whom they were committed because of their faith, and I had forgotten the robe's splendor, for as a child I had left it in my father's house. As I gazed on it, suddenly the garment like a mirror reflected me, and I saw myself apart as two entities in one form. The treasurers had bought me one robe, yet in two halves I saw one shape with one kingly seal. They gave me wealth, and the bright, embroidered robe was colored with gold and barrels, with rubies and opals, and sardonyxes of many colors were fastened to it in its high home. As its seams were fastened with stones of adamant, and the image of the king of kings was embroidered on it, as it rippled with sapphires of many colors. I saw it quiver all over. Moving with gnosis and a pulsing knowledge, as it prepared to speak, it moved towards me, murmuring the sound of its songs. It descended and said, 
I am the one who acted for him. For him, I was brought up in my father's house. I saw myself growing in stature, in harmony with his labors. With regal movements, the robe was spreading towards me, urging me to take it, and love urged me to receive it. And I stretched forth and received it and put on the beauty of its hues. I cast my toga of brilliant colors all around me. Therein I clothed myself and ascended to the gate of salutation and adoration. I bowed my head and adored the majesty of my father who sent it to me. I had fulfilled his commands and he fulfilled what he had promised. At the gate of his princes I mingled with his nobles. He was happy through me and received me and I was with him in his kingdom and his slaves praised him resoundingly. He promised me that I would journey soon with him to the gate of the king of kings, and with my gifts and my pearl, I would appear with him before our king. And there ends the song of the pearl. If you listened to all of this and think about what it's saying and look it up online where you can read it, it's laying out the basic story that I spent the first 20 minutes trying to explain. We come from another kingdom, and we're in the material world. We were sent here for a mission from our parents in that other world. This is deep mythology, and we often think of mythology or we've been taught of myths as something that are false uh, stories. But myths explain a truth that is not bounded by time. That's why they're reoccurring. That's why they show up in different cultures, in different times, in different places. And this fundamental myth that you and I come from somewhere beyond this material world and that we are here for a reason is a perennial one. And just like in the Song of the Pearl, it mentions the traveler being in the land of Egypt. This is the material world. He's put on the robes and garments of the material world. He's eaten the food of the Egyptians. And he's forgotten who he truly is. And how does the the truth from above, how does the truth from Hashem, from God, how does this come to the protagonist in the Song of the Pearl? It comes as the written word. It comes as a letter. It comes as these teachings in Scripture that have deep hidden meaning that are recorded on our heart and that have the power to help liberate us. This uh, story also gives another perennial myth that there is help from us from above. That in the the kingdom of the spiritual worlds, heaven, whatever you want to call it, that there are messengers and helpers from that world that are accessible to us, that want to help us, that want to see us wake up to who and what we really are and return to our robe of glory. So yeah, I've gone for about 35 minutes now. I don't know how rambling and disjointed this all sounds, but I think I've gotten a few good things down or a good place to start. I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I hope you'll subscribe and tune in and share and join me on this journey 
into the heart of our spiritual patrimony and to waking up and being freed by the gnosis of who we really are, of where we really come from, and of where we're really going. Uh, Thanks for listening and look forward to future episodes.